This morning's uh, reading comes from Romans 1, verses 16 through 25. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard the words, I have good news and I have bad news? It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? I mean, think about the implications. If someone said this to you, they might give you the choice between hearing the good news first or the bad news first. Some of you here today may be good news kind of people. You hear the good news and that's all you can think of. Others of you here today might be bad news kind of people. You hear the bad news and you don't hear anything else. But the underlying assumption behind these words, I have good news and I have bad news, is that you don't get to pick which set of news is true. You have to accept both sets of news. You have to hear both sets of news. I want to start this morning by telling you the story of a young German monk. A young man full of talent coming from a successful family and incredibly brilliant. This man, while brilliant, suffered from an overwhelming fear of God because he had a deep sense of his own failures in everyday life. He lived in terror of this God he knew to be holy and righteous because he knew he was none of those things. In fact, he was so afflicted by this fear that while he was in the early stages of a law career, having found himself in the midst of a terrifying thunderstorm, he cries out to the heavens, save me and I'll become a monk. He trades what's sure to become a successful law career for the difficult life of a monk. Sure enough, he survives the storm, and true to his word, he becomes a monk. And at the monastery, he spends his days, day and night, praying, lying prostrate on the floor, in hopes that this humble posture before God would quell his righteous anger against his sin. 
And after spending hours in his room confessing his sin, he'd go directly to the priest of the monastery to confess his sins to him. But he remained terrified of his own wickedness and of the wrath he knew this holy God would pour out on him. His own priest grew frustrated with him because he would spend hours in the confessional booth. The overwhelming stress and anxiety over his sin even gave him trouble digesting his food and sleeping at night. The other monks in the monastery were convinced that this guy was about to have a psychotic break because of what they witnessed in this young monk. By now you probably know I'm talking about the great reformer, Martin Luther. You see, Martin Luther was a bad news kind of guy. He focused entirely on the bad news. So much so that for a long time, he missed the good news that was right in front of him all along. Until one day, Martin Luther came across the words we read here in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And to him, the words were like a sudden revelation, like the lights got turned on for the first time. Sorry, guys. Uh, like the lights got turned on for the first time, and he could finally see the righteous shall live by faith. You see, Luther knew the bad news really well. The righteous shall live by faith was the good news. And when he heard the good news, the salvation is the free gift of God by grace through faith in Christ alone, it was a glorious revelation that would change the course of history. Our big idea today is this. The gospel is the power of God. His power is sufficient to redeem the worst in humanity, both among unbelievers as well as believers. God's righteousness is the thing that sets everything right in the world. The most vile evils, broken relationship, and even death itself. You see, Martin Luther understood something that on some level and in different ways we all understand. Namely, that our world is broken, full of sin and wickedness. He even rightly understood that a holy and just God does pour out his wrath on all evil. You see, he knew all the bad news. But what he had missed up until this point in his life, and what we uncover in our passage today, is the good news Reading Romans chapter 1, we uncover that while all around us is dark, evil, and hopeless, there is a powerful God who is at work to redeem it all and in the process reveal the greatest thing that ever existed, his glory. So here, Paul declares both the righteousness of God and the wrath of God are both revealed in this text. Both revelations are profound, and if we understand them properly, everything will start to make sense. So let's start here. What's the bad news? Well, we know the bad news, don't we? Because it stares us in the face every single day. There's pain and suffering in the world. There are broken relationships. There's inner guilt, sin that we cannot overcome, men inventing ways of doing evil. There's sickness and death in the world. And worst of all, 
we are separated from the God who created us. We walk around and notice that while the world around us is in fact beautiful, while people are nice and good things happen, we also realize that things are not the way they ought to be. The world is in decay. Okay, how's that for bad news? Now how about some good news? Our passage today highlights for us these three different truths about God that assure us that all this and everything that is broken because of sin will be made right. My hope is that our study of this passage today will continue to instruct our hearts about the three main attributes of God that we read about here in Romans chapter 1, which are the power of God, the wrath of God, and the glory of God. So let's dive right in. Number one, the power of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In these verses, Paul sets forth his, th his theme for the entire book of Romans. Everything Paul says in this masterpiece that is the letter to the Romans can all be traced back to this theme right here. And I'd like us to notice four distinct things that Paul is saying in these first two verses. And if you're a note taker, I dropped some fill in the blanks in the gathering guide. So feel free to go along as we go through our message today. Number one, God has eternal power to reveal his righteousness to wicked sinners through the gospel. This is good news. You see, the bad news tells us that the gravity of our situation was so dire that we were so hopeless in our sin that nothing short of the power of God would suffice to rescue us. God has the power to save, and he is the one doing the saving. Our salvation does not rest on something that is feeble or inadequate. It does not depend on something unpredictable. It is in the hands of eternal, almighty, creator God, who does not fail in anything he does. Just remember uh, Philippians 1, verse 6 and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see the picture Paul is painting about our salvation? Let's look at this another way. Tell me, what is there that God cannot do? Everybody, hold up the universal symbol for the amount of things that God cannot do. The God who is eternal, almighty, omnipotent, all-knowing, the God who created every intricacy of the world, eternally glorious, merciful to the thousandth generation, this is the God who is saving his elect. And it is absolutely not in his nature to fail. He will accomplish it. So this is the truth you cling to when you doubt. When you doubt, God sustains your faith. 
or when you struggle with ongoing sin. You remember, God is the one who foreknew, predestined, called, and justified you. And you can be sure he is the one who will sanctify and glorify you to the very end. This is the truth you cling to when when you want to boast in self-righteousness. In that moment, God shows you the bloody Savior hanging on the tree because of how desperately inadequate our own good works are. The gospel is the power of God to save. Not the power of Johnny Galan, not your power, not your spouse's power, not your parents' power. No, it is the power of God. God is the powerful one, and he is the one who saves. Praise him. So the second thing we see in these first two verses is this. You see, God is not only powerful to save, but look at how he saves. Number two, in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. This means he reveals both the beauty and the splendor of the total perfection found in his character, and he reveals the righteousness that we need for ourselves to be reconciled to him. You know, commentators debate what exactly is meant here in this verse by the words, the righteousness of God. Is it the righteousness as in the nature of God, describing him as without blemish, perfect, holy? Or is it the righteousness that we need to be declared right and good standing before this holy God? But I like the way Doug Moo puts it in his commentary where he says, why do we have to choose? The language in this verse actually makes it clear. He, Paul does, in fact, mean both. The righteousness of God perfectly good and just, and the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is, the righteousness that Christ lived out every single day of his life credited to me as my own righteousness. Don't forget 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's stop for a second and remember what we said previously about the eternal power of God to save. He does it. But look how he does it. So completely and so beautifully, making us perfectly righteous in his sight like only he has the power to do. Now take a look at how this happens, which leads us to our third point about these first two verses. Number three, it is a righteousness by faith. Salvation, as you know, is not something we work for or earn or achieve. It is something that is received by faith. It is the gift of God. This dispels the notion that salvation was ever attained by obedience to the law. Listen to how Martin Luther puts this. The works of the law are works done without faith and grace, but by the law, which forces them to be done through fear or the enticing promise of temporary advantages. But works of faith are those done in the spirit of liberty, purely out of love to God. And they can be done only by those who are justified by faith. Listen to this illustration he uses. An ape can cleverly imitate the actions of humans, but he is not therefore human. If he became a human, it would undoubtedly be by an act of God. Then, having been made a human, 
he would perform the works of a human in proper fashion. Paul does not say that faith is without its characteristic works, but that it justifies without the works of the law. Therefore, justification does not require the works of the law, but it does require a living faith which performs its works. You see, this takes us back to the double meaning of the word righteousness here that Paul uses. It is both the righteousness as it relates to our understanding and our standing before holy God, and it is righteousness as it relates to the good works we do in faith as a result of the salvation given to us by the power of God. This promise of justification, this promise of a righteousness that is by faith, is what took Martin Luther from being a trembling, quaking, fearful coward to being a faithful, rejoicing, fearless minister of the gospel. This is the kind of transformation the gospel avails to everyone, but it is effectual only by faith. Finally, the fourth thing we see in these first two verses, the gospel that restores Let's not miss this important detail in these first two verses. Look at the first words that Paul uses. I am not ashamed. Now, stop and think what Paul must have had in mind here. Don't forget, he was once a Pharisee. He probably had the Old Testament memorized. Yet I'm convinced that most of us here who probably don't have the Old Testament memorized can think about another place in the Scriptures where he hear this theme of being unashamed. Turn in your Bibles all the way to the beginning to Genesis chapter 2 and read with me in verses 24 to 25. This is after God creates Eve and brings her to Adam. We read, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and his wife were naked in the garden and were not ashamed. Lest you think this is referring only to marriage, jump over to the next chapter and look with me in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and saw that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The fall happens, and their eyes are opened, and they knew that they were naked. Going on in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God is walking in the garden where Adam and Eve up until that point enjoyed perfect, unabashed fellowship with Creator God. God's walking through the garden like it's just a normal thing. But now Adam is afraid because he is naked and he hides himself. 
Here we have the very first instance of this dreadful emotion that encompasses all of life for the very specific reason that it reminds us of what we lost. Intimate, unashamed fellowship with our Creator and with one another. Shame is a powerful emotion when you consider what was lost in the fall. It's also a powerful, a powerful emotion when you notice that you and I in our natural state can't help but follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. But by the grace of God, we can enter the presence of Almighty God like Adam and Eve did in the garden and through the gospel cry out, I am not ashamed. Okay, that was good news, right? Now we got to go over some bad news, but don't worry, there's more good news coming. The second attribute we see of God in this text is the wrath of God. Read with me in verse 18, back in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, now that sounds like a lot of bad news. But before we dive into this, let's get one thing straight. The reality of the wrath of God is only bad news to those who are still enemies of God. For all who would be reconciled to God through Christ, the wrath of God is sobering yet joyful news because it makes us understand what God has done for us in sparing us from his wrath. So let's first identify who exactly is Paul talking about in these verses that take us all the way to the end of chapter 1. So Paul is primarily covering the history of Gentile pagan nations. As we'll see in Romans chapter 2, he'll shift his attention to the Jewish nation and their sins. But several commentators agree that there are strands in this passage that ought to remind us of the history of idol worship in Israel at Sinai. And there's even possible references to the fall of Adam and Eve. The important point is to recognize that what Paul describes here is overtly true of all of humanity. The book of Romans is a wonderful exposition of the entire gospel, which gives us hope in a lost and sinful world. But we cannot overlook the fact that Paul begins his conversation of the gospel with the frank display of the utter depravity of man and the wrath of God that is rightly revealed against our sinfulness. The wrath of God is admittedly a difficult topic to discuss. It requires that we be honest with ourselves about our own sinfulness and also about how holy God is. And naturally, 
None of us want to do that. Some theologians look to soften the language and the interpretation of this text by indicating that uh, the wrath of God is somehow impersonal to God. That is to say that it's not actually God actively revealing his wrath, but something more like the scales of the universe are balancing. But the language in verse 18 does not allow for that. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Paul wants you to get this so badly that he even risks being redundant. There is no separating the person, character, and activity of God from the wrath that is revealed against ungodliness. Now, in order for us to properly understand what Paul is saying about the wrath of God here, we must first make sure we know what we mean by the wrath of God. So here are six things we learn about the wrath of God in the Bible. Number one, God's wrath is not an irrational fit of anger, like when you and I become angry, but it is a just meeting out of his retribution on those who have violated his perfect will. God is justly offended by all sin, and his wrath is a just response to that offense. Number two, God's wrath takes on different forms in the Bible. We see, for example, his cataclysmic wrath. This is where God sends natural disasters as punishment for Israel, for their disobedience. Think of the rebellion of Korah or of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God's consequential wrath. God promises in Deuteronomy, for example, these are my commands, obey them and you will live, disobey them and you will die. That's God's consequential wrath. There's the wrath of abandonment that we read about here in Romans 1. This is where God gives them over to their sin. There's God's eschatological and eternal wrath. God's final wrath against all evil in the last day. And perhaps more, most beautifully is God's redemptive wrath. This is the wrath that God pours out on his son as he dies in our place to forgive our sins. So God's wrath takes on different forms. Number three, God's wrath is a manifestation of his perfect holiness and therefore his utter hatred of evil. This is difficult for us to understand. But if you were perfect, if you were holy, you would hate evil too, the way God does. Oh, but I do. I hate evil. I hate that Hitler murdered six million Jews. I hate slavery. I hate that murder exists in the world. But you don't hate the lie you told to your spouse yesterday. You don't hate the hatred in your own heart that you harbor towards someone else. You see, we don't hate evil, not like God does. Number four, the Lord is long-suffering in his wrath. While all of us are worthy of instant wrath because of our sin, God has not given us what we deserve, but forbears with us in Christ and in his patience. Number five, God's wrath is being stored up. Just as God promises reward in eternity to each faithful believer according to what he has done, God is also storing up wrath for each person who dies in rebellion towards God. And finally, number six, God's wrath is not for those who believe in Christ, but for those who reject the truth of redemption through faith in Christ. 
So now that we have a fundamental understanding of some principles about the wrath of God, let's take a closer look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So first, we need to ask, what is the difference here between ungodliness and unrighteousness? Well, this is thematic throughout the scriptures. Ungodliness refers to our lack of reverence, worship, acknowledgement of God. We do not worship him. We are unlike him in his holiness and perfection. Unrighteousness, on the other hand, refers to conduct unbecoming toward our fellow man. And Paul is going to unpack this distinction in the verses ahead. But stop and think. Do these two things remind you of something else Jesus might have said? Look with me in Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 36, this is when the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus. And a clever lawyer comes and asks, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus here says that all of the law of God, every commandment given to us in the Old Testament, all 613 of them, boils down in some way, shape, or form to these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Let's also remember that the Ten Commandments were split up this way. There are four of them that command us how to rightly worship God. And there are six of them that command us how to rightly relate to one another. So the significance of the distinction that Paul is making here in using both of these words is this. We have all broken the entire law of God. We have, each of us, sinned against God and we sin regularly against our fellow man. So now that we understand the significance of these two words, let us see what Paul is saying about the recipients of God's wrath. So number one, who are these people? Number one, they lie to themselves. These are those who suppress the truth. Stop and think about this for a second. I mean, it's one thing if you lie to someone else, but only a fool would intentionally lie to himself, right? Yet that is exactly what is described here when Paul talks about wicked men suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Look at verse 19 and, and look at how clear Paul makes this here. This truth that they're suppressing. In verse 19 he says, It is plain to them. God has shown it to them. In verse 20, he says, His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived since creation so that they are without excuse. So let's stop and consider what Paul means by these different phrases here. He is not talking about information that is simply disclosed to us like a piece of evidence in a crime scene that the detective either finds or misses and depending on that, we'll see the outcome of the case. No, this is true, deep knowledge in your soul about the Creator God. This is knowledge of God that everyone deeply understands, so much so that they are without excuse for denying God, even though they never read a single verse of the Bible. 
There's a reason why every human innately has a knowledge of creator God. Not only because God reveals himself in creation, but let's also remember that in creation, God sets man apart as being the only creature made in his image. We carry the image of God, not only in that we are made in his likeness, but the relational personhood that we are endowed with in creation mirrors the intimate fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity. So when each of us look at a grand mountainscape or a flower blooming, there's something in us, something about the way we were created that connects with the Creator God so that we understand His existence. But this is the truth we suppress. We have lied to ourselves when deep down we know we are lying to ourselves. Just consider some of the scientific theories of our day. Yeah, all this you see around you, it wasn't created. It occurred randomly by way of a massive explosion and then billions of years of erosion and then billions more years of macroevolution where we evolved from a micro-celled organism to a complex individual with intelligence and emotion and intellect and creativity. Nonsense. Every time we see one of those evolutionary charts that shows the chimp becoming an ape and then the ape becoming a Neanderthal and Neanderthal becoming a human, we should cry out, lies. And every time we see a honeybee landing on the petal of a blooming flower to gather pollen so that it can make honey that is sweet to our taste, and then through that process, spread the pollen of every species of plant you can think of across the vast fields of the earth so that those plants can reproduce and more plants can grow and fill the earth with beautiful flowers and fruits and vegetables that in turn feed the animals, which in turn feed us so that we have energy to do the things we purpose to do. When we see the harmony of the world's ecosystems, we should cry out, glory. Thanks be to the creator God and his eternal power and divinity. Thank you, Lord, for your generous provision to us. Though we are sinful, yet you are merciful. But that is not what we say in our natural state. No, in fact, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, it's important to underscore here that what Paul is talking about is theologically referred to as general revelation. That is to say that God reveals himself and his attributes generally in creation. The idea of general revelation, though, stops short of the saving knowledge of the resurrected Christ who redeems us from our identity as lawbreakers and makes us a new creation through faith in his sacrifice. No, creation does not reveal the fullness of the gospel to us, but it does reveal to us the existence of the true living creator God, and we're told here it is enough to render us without excuse. Because we understand the truth about creator God, yet suppress the truth, we are without excuse. So those who suppress the truth are subject to the wrath of God. 
Let's take a look at the second characteristics of those who are under God's wrath. Number two, they render false worship. They exchange the glory of God for worthless idols. We've already said, and it bears repeating, that every human being who ever lived is in search of identifying some power greater than himself. Paul is, in fact, describing here idol worship of pagan nations, people who did not acknowledge the living God, yet still find something to worship. And if you think that this is no longer the case today, that we've become so intelligent as a species that we've outgrown the need for religion, just stay tuned until we speak in a moment about a little thing called humanism. John Calvin famously said that the heart of man is a perpetual idol factory. No wonder, just look at verse 23. They exchange the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That kind of sounds like a factory, doesn't it? Now, doesn't this sound like worship, what they're doing here? How can God impugn them for worshiping false idols when all they had was general revelation? But look closely what is said here. They exchanged the glory of God for worthless idols, the NIV says. This is not a genuine worship of submitting oneself to the Creator God, It is a depiction of those in rebellion against God who instead of recognizing the power and divinity of God and instead of realizing that God created man in his image, turn around and make God in their image. So, really, this is no worship at all. You see, if I choose to worship an image carved out of stone or wood, I not only get to decide what that image looks like, But I also get to decide what that God tells me. I can make a God that approves of every step I take, wandering willfully yet ignorantly toward my own destruction. If this were a legitimate philosophy for the world, imagine the chaos our world would be in when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Yet God in his mercy gives us a civil magistrate to institute order so that we do not immediately sprint towards self-destruction. You see how this isn't really something greater than yourself? In fact, it is self-worship at its core. John Murray puts it this way, the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there is the absence of the true, there is always the presence of the false. If you happen to believe that false worship in this form doesn't exist today, allow me to introduce you to something called secular humanism. This is the predominant Western worldview of our day. The belief that human nature and experience alone are sufficient to ground moral values. Man can create an adequate moral system and we can perfect ourselves if we all simply agree to rid ourselves of moral absolutes and dogmatic religion. In fact, they're so sure this will work They're quite dogmatic about it. This worldview conveniently ignores what we all know to be true. Namely, that we are innately immoral. That man is ultimately not good. We have failed to perfect ourselves over thousands of years of recorded human history. 
And secular humanism will not succeed at this goal any more than previous generations because at its core, it is nothing new. Nothing new under the sun, King Solomon says. It is the old pagan practice of idol worship and by extension, self-worship. Make no mistake, this is a religion that makes humanity the object of worship, just like we read here in Romans 1. The soul was created for intimate fellowship and communion with God. Glorifying and giving thanks to him are how we do that. And to neglect this vital duty is in itself rebellion against God. This is why we believe that there is no neutral status before God. You either worship him, ascribe to him the glory rightly due to him, or you are in rebellion. You see the power of God in creation but we fail to worship him. Instead, we embrace false worship and exchange something glorious for something worthless. Thus, sinful man is worthy of God's wrath. A third thing about these recipients of God's wrath, they deny God and they embrace evil. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Paul's emphasis on the lusts of their hearts here indicates that the pagan Uh, the pagans being referred to here were already drawn to the sin to which God handed them over. In reference to God's act of handing them over to their sin, Frederick Godet puts it this way, it's like God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. Stop and ponder that for a second. It is the very hand of God that keeps us from the utter ruin of our sinful proclivity. We want sin with all its consequences. And yet, God is holding us back from diving into our own destruction headfirst for as long as he wills. But do not become vainly confident in this. For as we see in this text, God's forbearance will only go so far. Relentless rebellion will result in his setting you free to endeavor in the passions of your flesh and indeed endure the consequences of it. We must stop and understand the utter insanity of what is being described here. On the one hand, you have Creator God, who is full of glory and splendor, as is revealed through His glorious and beautiful creation. On the other hand, you have fallen man. Which of these would you worship? Which of these do you worship? It's as clear as giving a man who is dying of thirst the choice between an ice-cold glass of water and a pitcher of motor oil. Yet man is so defiled, he chooses the latter. It is no wonder God is revealing his wrath. Okay, well, there's the bad news. Brutal, right? Thankfully, there's more good news coming. So the third characteristic of God that we see in this passage, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul ends verse 25 with a sudden outburst of praise to God. Paul is saying here that despite what depraved man does, God is still forever praised. That is, his glory is unaffected by our depravity. In fact, nothing can stop his glory from abounding. Throughout the Bible, God's glory is inextricably linked to his activity. So let's talk about five biblical aspects of God's glory. God in his glory creates, number one. 
God in his glory provides, number two. Number three, God in his glory redeems. God in his glory unites his people to Christ. And then finally, number five, God bestows his glory on the saints who in turn ascribe glory to him. God invites you to see this glory for yourself, to experience his glory in creating when he makes you a new creation, to experience his glory in providing, providing for all your needs, most importantly, the provision of a righteous Savior, to experience his glory in redeeming, freeing you, forgiving your sin, and giving you a heart that loves what is good, restoring what has been broken in your life by the power of the gospel. God invites you to see his glory in uniting you with Christ, freeing you forever of all the guilt and shame you carry with you every day. And then finally, God in his glory invites you to experience eternity, enjoying what we were made for, to dwell in the presence of the most high God, in intimate fellowship with him, unashamed, rejoicing because we are home where we belong. So what will we say vis-a-vis application from Romans chapter 1 today? If you're here and you're a believer, consider the power, the wrath, and the glory of God. I want to give you three things to take home with you today. Number one, remember. Remember exactly what God has done. Don't ever lose sight of what God has rescued you from. Keep it in view that you might worship fervently, recognizing that in view of God's wrath, every single breath is a mercy for which he deserves eternal praise. Remember just how faithful he is. Also, if we remember, we can walk faithfully, trusting in his power to save. He'll save you through seasons of doubt, through ongoing struggles with sin. He will do it. He is powerful. And remember that the flesh, which is still at work in us, still tempts us to suppress the truth, to exchange the glory, and to exchange the truth. So we rely every day on his grace and his power. Do this. Establish regular rhythms in your home of reading the Bible with your family, praying together and singing the truth of the gospel together so you might remember. So that your grandchildren's grandchildren might remember the mighty work that God did on our behalf. Number one, remember. Number two, repeat. Rehearse the gospel in its fullness. Follow the example of Paul here. He does not neglect the difficult doctrine of the wrath of God, but expounds on it so that God's mercy is brought into view and becomes all the sweeter. Share the gospel faithfully. Remind one another of the gospel regularly. Number three, rejoice. Let your life reflect the gratitude and worship that the gospel elicits. When your heart is set on anxiety or fear, Remember the power of God and worship. Give thanks. Make gratitude a regular discipline in your life. Martin Luther, that monk we talked about at the beginning, after overcoming crippling fear, penned these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. 
Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Is that not the power of God to take a man from living desperate in his fear to writing words like that? Is that not what he does with each and every one of us who call on the name of Christ? If you're here and you're an unbeliever, and, and you might not know that that describes you, but if you don't know that you know that you know that you are reconciled with holy God, look deep inside, then look at creation. Reject the idolatry of humanism and the spirit of self-worship, embrace the glory of God. I put before you today two choices, reconciliation or rebellion. Take God seriously. He will not negotiate over which aspects of your life you might surrender to him and over which aspects you remain sovereign. And if you think I relish telling you about the wrath of God, trust me, I do not. As one pastor puts it, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar, where to find bread. Hear the call of Christ. Surrender to his will and submit yourself to the true and living God who has made a way to redeem and restore all things in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. And we thank you for your power that you do not fail. Let us look to you every single day of our lives, not to ourselves, but let us trust in you, your eternal power to save us from your wrath and to allow us to experience your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.